Thank you so much, Peggy, for being here today. You're my 23rd guest on the Wave Capital's guest speaker series on relationship building in a team environment. So glad you're here today. How are you? I'm fantastic. And I'm laughing about being the 23rd because 23 is one of my lucky numbers. Uh, I always play it when I'm in Vegas and um, 23 because I started my career during the Jordan era with the Chicago Bulls, uh, whether it was at ESPN, uh, then when I came home to Chicago for the other three Bulls championships. So I love that I'm number 23 for you. That's good luck. Absolutely. And I have had the pleasure of meeting Michael Jordan. I have the picture with him back in 2005 over my shoulder I met him at a golf tournament with my dad, and I even had uh, number 23 as well as my favorite number uh, growing up and wearing that on my high school <laughs> basketball team. And I, and I recently interviewed uh, Roland Lazenby, who's a book author, and Michael Jordan, The Life is a book that he wrote, and I'm currently reading it. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to finish that book, but so glad for you to be here. And that's great that, you know, you're a big Michael Jordan fan. You've you know, you covered um, the Bulls when you started your career in Chicago and the fact that you used to work in Bristol at ESPN like I did. Uh, when you think of relationship building in a team environment, Peggy, what does relationship building mean to you? Wow. Um, I think it's the moment you walk in the door is the impressions begin. And it's really hard to make up for a bad impression and um, that can lead to some poor relationships in any environment, uh, whether it's at a, a TV station uh, with a team that I was covering. Every moment that you spend with them, you're developing a relationship with them and you want them to get to know you. Um, you're in charge of the message that you send out. And for me, it was always be professional, but be yourself. Uh, I'm in charge of whatever people think of me. And you know what's funny that we started talking about Michael Jordan? Yeah. Michael Jordan. Idol. <laughs> I mean, he was the ultimate in knowing how to spin. Before really spin was a term when it came to you know, image and marketing and public relations. And um, Mark, Michael was always in charge of his own image. Um, sure, he had agents and sure he had people working with him, but when you were alone with him and 30, 40 other media members, you knew that Michael was in complete control of the relationships he was going to build with you and the image he was going to give you. Now, take that back into my own life. And professionally, it's the same thing. I'm in charge of my image and the relationship from day one and what I want you to think of me. And that is, you know, whether it's dressing professionally, listen, you can be yourself and have a sarcastic personality like I do, and yet still be professional and earn respect. And I think that truly relationship building starts from the moment you first meet somebody because it's really hard to fix them in the end. And when you talk about relationship building and when you talk about, you know, working with others and, you know, you give Michael Jordan as an example, you know, being the ultimate relationship builder, you know, on the, all those Chicago Bulls teams. And when you are covering him in the media, you know, Michael Jordan, he's the epitome of leadership. And when you think about in your career, leadership qualities, 
what are essential leadership qualities that makes you a better leader in a leadership role and working with others and being a mentor to others? Wow. Okay. So leadership in my career, leadership as a sports journalist in television and in radio, I think it begins with recognizing the people around you and giving them the respect that they deserve because everyone's a cog in the wheel. Um, my dad had a job as a janitor at a high school in Illinois. And my mom used to say that I was so much like my dad because he could talk to anybody. And I would go to work with him sometimes and notice the people that wouldn't talk to him because he was a janitor and the people that did talk to him, whether they were the school principal, the students, uh, teachers, you know, maybe the, um, the local police officer that was, you know, at the high school. And so what I learned from my dad was that the relationships you build, you can't treat the CEO of a team, uh, the head coach, the star of the team differently than you're going to treat the ball boy, the janitor, the guy who parks cars, because in the end, you want likability, respect, fairness, and I may need them at some point, just like they may need me. So as much as an athlete wants us to be fair, uh, it's really important that I am fair in the respect that I dole out as well, because, you know, this athlete, yeah, great, you know, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, who doesn't want to do an interview with them, right? But if I'm a journalist, Bernie Goldberg from HBO Real Sports used to say, the best stories are not always with the star athletes. The best stories are with someone else that no one's thought about. And it is the ball boy. Uh, it is the guy who parks the cars. Maybe it is the mailman. Um, maybe it is the, you know, the, the guy who's filling up the water bottles. You know, there's so many other people that you can build a relationship around these big stars and come out with better stories you do a better job. Now, of course, we all have to have a relationship with the people at the top, whether it's the team owner, the general manager, the stars. But the more you can cast open a wide net with the relationships that you develop, the better reporter I am going to be. Because I'm going to start hearing from some of them about, you know, maybe that guy who washes the jerseys rolls his eyes and says, this guy is not a good guy. Just as a slight aside, I put that in the back of my head. I'm doing a story on this guy six months later, and I'm wondering, yeah, this guy isn't the same guy that he's showing the public, is he? That's going to reflect in my stories that I have some more knowledge than just what everybody thinks. And beyond the relationship building, Garrett, is you really have to listen. I mentioned you know, a, a guy who washes uniforms may make a comment in passing, right? You really do have to listen. I remember once when Jay Cutler, the Bears quarterback, was walking through the locker room at Hallis Hall and uh, just a very, you know, we, all the media was waiting to do interviews. And he looked over at one of his wide receivers who was goofing around, you know, it was their downtime. And he made a comment, seriously, he said, you know, maybe you should be spending more time in the film room, film room so that you run your routes correctly. And he walked out. Now, no one else caught it. People 
Yeah, it was just a flippant remark. If anyone else did catch it, they just kind of giggled and laughed like, huh, that's funny. He was giving this guy a hard time. Well, I kind of just put that in the back of my head as, hmm. And then I started asking, you know, why wasn't this wide receiver doing better? He, there was so much expected of him, you know, and I asked, you know, is his route running an issue? And you find out, yeah, his route running is an issue. That's from listening. That's from hearing just an aside comment from somebody that didn't have to be reported at the time, but that I could file in the back of my memory bank to be used for a story later on. And those are the things that I think are really important. And it, it, it really, it, it goes across not just you know professionally, but personally too, being able to listen. Sometimes what you think is the answer and you go in with a preconceived notion and then you talk to say your spouse, your significant other, and they have a whole different opinion of something that happened. Maybe you disagree about something and you think, well, I'm right here. But then when you actually listen to them, their perception is different. It's not that they're wrong. It's not that I'm wrong or I'm right. It's that that is their perception. And that's really important to understand the way people see things and experience things. Because like they say with reporters, send two reporters to the same fire and you're gonna get two different stories. It's all how we perceive things. It really is. And you know, everybody's perception in his or her own way is, is his or her own reality. And I think that, you know, relationships really come in all different forms. And you mentioned family and you mentioned, you know, on a sports team and a business or organization and your experiences as a professional journalist. I mean, you've seen a lot of different angles of relationship building and you've been in a lot of different environments and being able to as you say like store it in the mat in the back of your you know memory bank you know seeing how jay cutler had made that comment to uh his wide receiver you know going back into the fill room and you know studying his routes more because it makes a difference on game day you know if he expects his wide receiver to be a leader on the field you know he wants to take his job and he would hope that he takes a job very seriously. What what can a a professional sports organization, you know, what they strive to have a winning culture, you know, teams throughout the years, doesn't matter whether it's the NHL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, um, you know, professional golf players, uh, soccer players, you know, volleyball players. I mean, they strive to be champions, whether in the Olympics or you know throughout the course of their seasons. So what could they learn from a journalist like yourself? What could they learn about the television news industry? Because if you look at broadcast news, it is almost like wanting to be a championship type of culture mm -hmm. to be embodied in, in their newsrooms. So what would you say would be great advice? What could they learn from someone like yourself who thinks like a championship organization when, you know, you're working for ESPN or NBC Chicago? Well, I think um, transparency is key. And I think that uh, transparency is so important to a professional sports organization, to their fans and to the media. Now, I'm not telling you that they have to tell all of their corporate secrets on you know, every move that they're making, but if they're transparent in what their plan is, if they're transparent with the media instead of hiding, when you hide and you're not available, 
that's when all the negative stories start coming. That's when you have other people speaking uh, on behalf of the organization, people outside of the organization. And so I think transparency is really key so that you control the narrative. You control the message that is out there. You accept the fact we're going to have bumps in the road. We're going to fail. But this is what our ultimate plan is. and This is our goal. When you're not transparent with the media, you start having the media asking, well, why this, why this, why this? And when they don't answer you, we have no other choice but to go elsewhere to find the answer. And those may not be the people you want speaking on behalf of the organization. Um, I think that Theo Epstein, when he was with the Chicago Cubs, did a brilliant job of being transparent. He was always available. Week after week, he was on the field explaining their thought process in making some moves or maybe what they might be looking for before a trade deadline. Um, other teams in town have not been as transparent and it has hurt them PR-wise. And I think that it's really hard to fix that PR machine when it starts to go awry. So I would say what championship teams can learn or teams that want to be championship is to be transparent. To be able to control the narrative means you have someone who is a great representative of the organization getting your message out and getting it out constantly so that there are no questions that lead to stories that may be inaccurate or false, but that you can no longer control. So I would think number one for a, a sports organization truly is to be transparent. And number two, appreciate all the cogs in your wheel and make sure that all those cogs lead to the same thing. So whether it is the ball boy, the guy washing you know, the, the laundry, um, an assistant coach, um, your third string defensive back, uh, Everyone has to be on the same page, but you have to give them reason to want to give it their all to the organization. So you can't, you can't neglect anybody. Everyone has to feel like they are truly a part of the ultimate goal. Yeah, and you have to feel that when you are a voice to recognize and to speak out about, you know, defending, you know, someone or protecting someone, you know, and their, their image, because you don't want them to feel that, you know, they're just, you know, another person. They're not, when you're on a team, you want everybody to recognize everybody's involvement and how critical their role is. And it's like it on a championship team, you have your starters, but then you also have your role players. And, you know, you talk about all the different uh, intricacies of what makes a team so special and what makes them like a family too because you know you mentioned the gender you mentioned the ball boy you mentioned the, the the person who parks the cars I mean there's so many different roles that are required to make the game day and an NFL game NBA game NHL game um, what have you and everybody plays a critical role and I think that because of your background and what your father did as a gender, it made you appreciate probably you being in your role to appreciate the people that you've come across with on game days and also preparing in your day-to-day um, -day as a journalist. Well, what, what made you want to go into broadcast journals and what made you want to cover sports? Uh, I'd like to learn more about that. 
and how that well, shaped you into <laughs> a relationship builder. I, I had seven brothers. I have seven brothers, uh, two sisters. I was number five of 10 children growing up on the Northwest side of Chicago. Um, blue collar family, like I mentioned with my dad. My dad worked three or four jobs. My mother stayed at home until she went to work. Uh, when I was probably around seventh, eighth grade, my mom went to work at nights. And um, I was a jock growing up. I was an athlete. I, you know, when you're the middle child and it's, you know, hey, bring your sister with you. You know, after a while, I'm going with my brothers and I'm playing right field to fill out their baseball team when I'm, you know, 10 and 11 years old. Um, I'm grabbing a basketball and going across the street to where the school was and the the outdoor basketball you know net that was set up. Um, we used to have a um, fast pitch uh, that was spray painted, I think, on the convent wall of the nuns across the street. And you all you needed was one other person, you know, ideally three, but you know, someone to pitch, someone to hit, and someone to field the ball. And so, that's what I grew up doing back in the 70s. That was what kept me busy was playing sports. And so I became a um, second team all-state basketball player in Illinois, um, all city in Chicago, uh, did tore up my knee. So I didn't play in college, although being five, five and a half, I really would have had to be a lot better than I actually was to, to see any playing time anyways. Um, so I knew I wanted to stay in sports. And um, again, back then, I just assumed I'd probably be a coach because I really didn't know any women. I didn't really have any role models of professional women that did anything else except teach or coach. And I just assumed I'd coach. And then one day I was uh, walking in my brother's apartment at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. And he and his friends were all glued to the TV and they were watching something. I walked in, nobody turned around. And finally I nudged someone. I said, what are you guys watching? And they said, oh, it's this new channel called ESPN. It's all sports all the time. And I thought, what? And I looked at the TV and Gail Gardner was anchoring SportsCenter. A lot of people may not remember Gail Gardner. She was one of, if not the first female anchor at ESPN. And that was it. That was my Oprah aha moment that I didn't see, I never knew a woman could do that before. And so that's when I thought, well, that's what I want to do. I, I want to talk sports all day. I want to be able to do that. Now, ironically, at the same time that I was in college, um, Jeannie Morris was doing sports in Chicago at WMAQ and, w, and WBBM Channel 2. She was the first woman sports anchor in Chicago, but I wasn't aware of it at the time because I was away at school. When I came home, a couple of years later, the Bears won the Super Bowl, and you know I saw Jeannie on TV all the time, and so I had more of a role model. But um, my role models were all guys. It was you know I had a picture of Bob Costas, a story from an old newspaper hanging up in my my college you know room. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to be. I would write letters to all the sports anchors in Chicago asking for an internship. I had an interview for an internship and the producer pulled out you know, this uh, Trivial Pursuit game, which everyone now knows is on their phone, but back then it was a board game. And all the orange questions were sports. Now, anyone that played Trivial Pursuit 
you know, we would all ask for the orange questions, you know, let's get to orange, let's get to orange. And um, he asked me all the orange questions. Well, I didn't know the answers. And I was so angry that that was his interview with me that I took the L train home to the Northwest side of Chicago. I was stewing in my living room. I was so angry and I picked up the phone and I called him and I said, I just wanna thank you for the interview, but I also wanna tell you that just because I didn't know those answers doesn't mean I don't know how to find those answers. And I think that that's just as important that someone knows how to find the answers than someone who just has all the answers when it comes to sports broadcasting. Um, so that's kind of how it all started uh, for me. I, I knew I was a little bit kind of having to push my way through, but I don't think I ever looked at it as me being any kind of a trailblazer. It was really just something I really wanted to do. And, you know, you, you know, were growing up in a time and you were, you know, rising in the 80s and even in 90s and to see the, the Chicago Bears win the Super Bowl, to see, you know, Michael Jordan compete against the Lakers and the Celtics and the Pistons and Cleveland Cavaliers. I mean, really, Michael Jordan's career was the fabric of Chicago sports. I mean, yes, there was the Cubs and there was the White Sox and uh, there were the Bears and and you had the Bulls and you had the Blackhawks. And, but obviously Michael Jordan's career and being the first global sports icon to really elevate basketball on a, you know, world-renowned level. Uh, just talk to me about, you know, covering those games and you know, maybe some of the anecdotes along the way where you felt, wow, I, I was right there. I was right in it. And I'm, you know, this young, you know, sports journalist. And, you know, I've been, you talk about your aha moment, you know, in your brother's apartment, seeing ESPN on the TV screen for the first time, and then eventually working for ESPN. So it seemed to me that that was like the turning point, you know, and that was the catalyst to where you are today. Yeah, you know what was funny with the whole Jordan era? Um, I knew I was extremely fortunate those final three championships to be in Chicago. I also knew that I was I was um, a peon in in the media group at that time. You know, there were I mean, if to cover the Bulls back then, it truly was rock star status. And um, I was never really in that. We used to call, we had two waves of interviews in the locker room when it came to Michael. And the first wave was all, you know, the tier one reporters who got right in there. You would be 20, 30 people deep reaching their microphones in, trying to get in there, right? And then after about 12, probably about 12 minutes, they would all leave. And then the second tier, people who couldn't elbow their way into the first tier, you know, we would come in and Michael was so gracious. He would sit there until every question was asked. There was never a get up and walk away, we're done. There was never the PR people saying, okay, last question, like they do now. Michael listened to everybody. And that was extremely gracious of him because what he realized was that Anybody here, their story is just as important as Sports Illustrated and NBC Sports and, you know, Ahmad Rashad or Bob Costas or, you know, Mark Greco at Channel 7, which was king, you know, forever in Chicago. 
he really did give credence to everybody's story was going to be important. And uh, he was ahead of his time with that because today you never know what story is going viral. Um, so I really, that was really all a learning time for me, those years when they won the last three. That was really, and but what it did was because he acknowledged us, it really did give me the confidence. And I think I really from there just kind of started making a name for myself. Um, I really started covering the bears on a regular basis. I would go toe to toe with my Ditka sometimes. Um, and it, that was where I think the respect started coming across the city. And once you get that respect and that confidence, you know, listen, I made mistakes. We all make mistakes. Um, but uh, that was really to, to go from the Jordan Bulls to the Bears is always being, you know, since the Jordan Bulls, it's been Bears. They're, they've been the number one team in town. Um, and to garner the respect of them really was key, I think, for me. And, you know, I, I met Mike Ditka when I was at, you know, ESPN. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, what a competitor he was. I mean, the 85 Bears were such an exceptional team. And when I met Michael Jordan back in 2005 in Greensboro, North Carolina, it was the his hoop tee celebrity golf classic that he and Fred Whitfield, who helps him run the uh, Charlotte Hornets, who's a, you know, someone who we got to know my father and I, when we uh, met Michael Jordan and my father got to golf with, uh, with Richard Dent, the uh, Super Bowl MVP of the bears. I have this picture of Richard Dent and he signed it for me. And that was a, you know, a shining moment for me in the, uh, in all the times that I've met professional uh, sports athletes. And, you know, I remember, you know, Charles Oakley, uh, you know, played for the Chicago Bulls and all, all went on to the Knicks and other teams. And at that golf tournament, it was pretty cool because he and uh, Richard Dent were, you know, playing, you know, golf. And then I think that after everybody was done playing golf, they went to play another you know, 18 holes because they were that competitive. And my point is that you meet all these athletes who are so competitive. I think Michael Jordan is the most competitive athlete and the greatest, in our opinion, the greatest basketball player of all time. But then you see all these other athletes you meet throughout the years. I mean, I've met Derek Jeter. I've met um, Johnny Damon. I've met, you know, Bill Walton. I've, I've met a lot of interesting uh, and exceptional players and so you have as well and when you cover them or when you meet them what are the first things that strike you is it their competitiveness you mentioned their you know how gracious they are you mentioned like how patient they are um you know we're in an industry where you know we cross paths with people that you know the average american are not or average americans are not crossing paths with and i think that it's what makes our industry very exciting um but they don't really appreciate when they're watching on tv the potential likelihood of getting to actually meet these athletes in person do you think that like when you meet them what do you look for after watching a game what do you look for in you know covering a story you know is it more about what we're seeing you know you know when we're watching games you know obviously stats are being recorded, you know, how many points, how many rebounds, how many assists, how many touchdowns were thrown, but do you try to find the human elements in the 
story to really make the story come alive and to really speak about, you know, what it takes to be a champion. Yeah, I think that there's a couple of answers to that. And I think that um, first and foremost, you have to uh, you have to watch what's going on besides the game, because listen, at the end of the game, I could get a stat sheet and I, I could do a story based on the stat sheet and just say who won, who lost, who went on a, you know, a 15 and 0 run, um, you know, penalties ran up, you know, held this. you could do a story easily off the stat sheet. But what I could do differently than somebody at home is I can tell you what I saw. And when I saw, you know, athlete A um, angry on the bench, um, storming off, confronts another player that maybe the cameras didn't catch, um, another coach gets in his face, um, uh, dejection um, during a game, um, body language is a little, you have to be very careful in trying to um, discuss body language, but you do have to watch the game outside of the game. And um, sometimes it's um, um, a friendship with another player. Sometimes, you know, it's uh, watching who gives, you know, a high five hug to each other before a game during warmups. Sometimes it's watching to see maybe who gets face to face with somebody in warmups. Those are the stories that make your story even better um, to say, um, this rivalry was brewing before kickoff because during warmups, you know, these two players went head to head, didn't let the other cross, you know, the 50 yard line. There's things like that that happen. And so the more you can tell the story that the viewer at home didn't get to see, you have now given them more information than their eyes told them. So what I learned is it doesn't matter gender blind, uh, if you cover a, a sport, um, if you've never played a sport, doesn't matter. You have to be a really good observer as well. And I think you have to be the eyes and ears. And you talk about every observer is not going to be, you know, as proficient and, you know, maybe understanding the game. And some family members in a family are more sports focus and others and have more excitement when it comes to sports, but then they can get other people in their families involved. And you don't have to be a big sports uh, person to enjoy really great competitive sports and exciting sports. And especially with all the different storylines you talk about and all the different things that you're seeing when you're covering it. And I think that when you watch the last dance, like we did last year um, or back in, uh, Back in 2020, we felt that, wow, look at all the different intricacies of the Chicago Bulls and look at all the different personalities and, and relationships and times that, you know, Michael Jordan would butt heads with Jerry Krause or Phil Jackson would butt heads with Jerry Krause and vice versa. And, you know, but that's what made championship basketball for them because all those different storylines no matter if they were positive or negative, everybody really at the end of the day played their part and they didn't have to be the best of friends, but they played their part and they still had to adhere to what relationship building really means and what is required to be successful, whether you're coaching, whether you're managing a team, whether you're playing for the Bulls. 
So I think that it's interesting that you bring up that example because you happen to see so many different things that probably when you were watching the last dance you probably maybe there were things that you knew that maybe other people didn't know and it just reminded you what it was like to cover um, the team at that time well and i think garrett that when you you're talking about leadership and you're talking about you know whereas michael jordan um, and scotty pippen may have not had the best relationship with jerry kraus you had a great team leader in phil jackson and Phil Jackson knew how to balance all the personalities. And he knew you know, when to tell someone to stay back. He knew when to let them go ahead. Um, when you talk about uh, the leadership of an organization, it's, it's extremely important to understand everyone within your organization and to be able to identify the leaders within your organization and allow them to be leaders and not force those who are not natural leaders to be a leader. Um, I think that that's really important that everyone then knows and understands their role. Um, the other side of it, when you were talking about not having to be a sports fan uh, to necessarily relate, um, any organization can, can understand this, that uh, you wanna increase people to like your product. You want people to give your product a try, right? Perfect example, Chicago Blackhawks hockey. They were you know, the, the last team in Chicago uh, to get any kind of coverage. Um, they, there was a saying they used to have 30,000 fans and they all went to the games. So no one cared about them outside of that. Proven not to be true. When they started to market the team and make them interesting by making you get to know the players. We got to know Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane. And then you had, you know, you always have to have, you know, villains, you know. So then you'd get to know some of, you know, the players who just had a nasty streak. You got to know the players who were funny. And it drew people into this team. Now, add, why is hockey an exciting sport? Well, I can tell you firsthand, I, I didn't know hockey before I started covering it. But when you start showing it to people and you say, you know, this is really fun or you like Jonathan Taves or Patrick Kane, um, give these guys a try. And people started watching and they started sampling the product. They liked it. It was fun. It was exciting. But this was from the top down. This was from Pat Foley calling the games that made it exciting. This was from doing stories about the people in the stands that, um, you know, were leading chants and, and songs. Um, you know, there were so many other elements that they were able to bring in to sell the product. And they go on, they win a couple of championships, Stanley Cups, and the fan base becomes one of the largest in the National Hockey League. So there's a lot that when you understand your organization and you bring out the best in everyone and you showcase and you appeal to different people, it just all comes back to a nice package wrapped up that says, look, now this is our product. So there's a lot of, you know, as, a, as team leaders, getting to know your organization and, and how you can appeal to others, it's, um, it's, it's very interesting and it's exciting when you have so many different elements like you do when it comes to sports teams. And I like your reference about 
you know, products and, and, and selling your products because in the business world too, it's all about what products and services you might be offering to your client base and they have expectations if they are going to, you know, hire you for a specific task or assignment or a project in, in my world, you know, where an organization needs financing or needs, you know, capital to get a project or business off the ground or to the next uh, stages of the business where they would like it to go in terms of, uh, you know, being able to market their products and services to the mass population, mass audience, who would be using it, the consumers. So when you think about maybe talking to a Mike Ditka or talking to a Michael Jordan or talking to others, you know, they're very much, you know, the figure heads or they're like, they're very much the part of the brand, if you will, of that sports team. So talk about that type of relationship when it comes to, okay, you're not only being a consumer of what the organization is offering, but you are also having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with, I guess, essentially part of the brand, or if not the most important part of the brand, the coach or the player. So have you ever thought about it from those perspectives? Well, yeah, you know, what you're doing is you're respecting the brand. Um, when you are given those opportunities, by all means, you're respecting the brand. But at the same time, what I would always try to do is find the human element behind it. You know, you can have iconic figures um, across business and they seem untouchable and they seem like they're um, not human. And what I would always try to do was really bring more of a human element, um, joke around with them. Mike Ditka was very gruff um, and he loved to try to intimidate you. And, you know, as long as you held your ground with him, that was good. But then whenever I would see him outside of a uh, interview situation, I tried to talk to him. I tried to just make small talk. Um, and I think when you do that, you start to break down um, their, that image. Some of them don't like it. You know, um, Frank Thomas used to say to me, you know, oh no, Peggy, I'm not going to talk to you. You're going to try to make me cry. And I would say, Frank, I don't try to make people cry. I'm just trying to find different elements that we haven't seen from these iconic sports figures before. So yeah, to answer your question, sure. I, I think it's about respecting them as being the face of a franchise, um, but at the same time, trying to bring a human element that makes them more relatable to people too. Was Frank being facetious or when you were saying uh, yeah. that? Yeah. I figured. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it's whenever I would ask him for an interview and he would say no. <laughs> Nope, nope, nope. I don't want you to make me cry. And I, I thought that was funny that he he thought that I was trying to be Oprah or something. But yeah. When you talked about your challenges or when I say challenges or the mistakes that you've made, which you could see as challenges. I think that's where I was getting with my question. You mentioned mistakes that you've made, which I think could be um, challenging to figure out those mistakes and overcome them. What were those mistakes and how did it make you a better journalist to, today? Oh, um, 
Oh boy. Um, you know, just really, really minor mistakes um, in terms of um, a player's position, um, maybe a mispronunciation, um, you know, things like that. And, uh, you know, they stuck with me. And what I learned is, um, I don't know, I think that it, it is a gender thing. I think women um, are more careful and overprepare when it comes to, at least in sports journalism, um, wanting to make sure that they're always right. Whereas men take more risks. Men don't care if they make a mistake, eh, they roll, let it roll off, whatever, everybody makes a mistake. But I think it's because women always felt like there was you know, more to lose if you made a mistake, then it would not be held against you know, a guy to make a simple mistake. It would be held against a woman to make a simple mistake. Oh, she doesn't even know football when that's just not the case, right? So um, I think that, that what I learned from those and it took my entire career was to let them go. You just let it go. You just have to let it go and move on with confidence and let your entire body of work always speak for itself. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, having the mental fortitude, you know, the discipline to persevere and think that, you know, I learned from my mistake, thankfully minor, and I'm able to move on and feel that, you know, I am not perfect and I'm not somebody who has all the answers today, but you know, that's the great thing about journalism. You are all, always like researching and reporting and preparing. And, you know, recently a producer from a major network said that every broadcast you do is like a performance. I mean, every report that you do is like a performance. And I look at that and I say, well, it's a performance, but it's not so much, in my opinion, should be seen as like acting I think that because when you're trying to bring out the human elements of an interview when you're talking to somebody you want people to know that this is not just an acting job I mean this is a real person a journalist asking another real person an athlete or a coach real questions that real people want to know because it puts into context the games that they're watching and it puts into context you know how a team is doing and really it gives some type of sense that they are wanting to know and what they have in their minds and wanting to ask themselves but you're doing that for the audience you're having to not only speak on behalf of yourself the network you work for but you're also keeping the audience at home the viewership the readership in mind as well when you're asking questions. And when you talked about going toe to toe with Mike Ditka, I'm pretty sure, you know, I would love to know like maybe what were those conversations about? Because people, maybe people at home were thinking like what you were thinking when you were asking those questions. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a real quick story, Mike Ditka's story. I was a producer, an associate producer at ESPN and I was uh, stationed in Chicago. Um, I was going to do a story at um, the old Hallis Hall in Lake Forest. And I was producing for Andrea Kramer. And I had to go do the press conference and ask a couple of questions on behalf of Andrea for the story. And when I got there, 
at the time, uh, one of the, a Tribune reporter by the name of Fred Mitchell was extremely helpful to me. Uh, he asked where I was from. I told him he knew I, you know, I was young. Um, you know, uh, maybe I looked like wide-eyed and, you know, I was going to be thrown into the, the lion's den when it comes to a Ditka press conference. And he said, are you planning on asking any questions? And I said, yeah, I have a, a couple of questions. And he said, well, here's a, a little tip when it comes to Mike. Be prepared. Be prepared if he throws it right back at you. And I thought, throws it right back at me. Well, if I'm just asking about what he was right. And so you had to, I had to really look at my questions. And I remember it was a, it was a story about high school sports was being taken away in some parts of Chicago. And we were talking to Chris Zorich, who was playing for the Bears at the time. And we were talking about the importance of high school sports. And so I thought, well, gosh, why would a, a coach throw this back at me? And Fred was right, because when I asked my first question to my Ditka, he said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? And he did. He threw it right back at me. And I said, oh, Mike, I'm just talking about um, the recent legislation to cut back on high school sports, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and I'm wondering if you, and it, so it, it forced me to be able to rephrase my question and ask it in a different way. Um, that was an easy way to be confronted by Mike Ditka. Since then, I had been to many of press conferences where he threw it right back. I've had other players throw it back at me and say, well, tell me exactly you know, what, I, what I'm doing wrong. Um, Jay Cutler once said it to me. He said, well, what mechanics are wrong, Peggy? And so I had to be prepared to be able to come back at him, not just you know, be half prepared with a question that maybe everyone's talking about, but you, you don't really understand the full depth of the question. You have to be fully prepared. So I would say that when it comes to uh, being able to, to face some of these guys like a, a Mike Ditka. <laughs> Who's someone you haven't covered yet who you would love to cover? Oh, wow. I don't think about that because it's so different today with Zoom interviews. Um, I'd like to get to know the athletes better. Um, I would love, I would love to cover Justin Fields. Um, I don't cover the Bears anymore. I'm uh, currently retired, so um, I, I just find him to be a very interesting person um, that we have not even begun to get to know yet. Um, Patrick Mahomes would be very interesting. Um, you know, I've covered LeBron James and. Um, the LeBron James machine is so big that there really is not any opportunity for a, a local sportscaster to, to get to know someone as big as that, like um, maybe we did when it came to Michael Jordan. Um, where there's lots of athletes it's that I just find interesting, uh, that I'm enjoying watching as a fan. And um, I look forward to each generation of athletes that comes up because they present us with new challenges, new personalities, um, new forms of leadership, which is really interesting. I love seeing when young guys are good leaders because uh, I find it extremely impressive. I, I have two 19-year-olds myself. So when I see a 20-year-old athlete who is a leader, I am 
incredibly impressed that they can carry themselves in such a way in such a, a short amount of time on this earth. So um, I love just looking to see, you know, who's next. Yes, and it's amazing. It truly is because you feel like every generation, the athletes and their maturity is coming out for the public to see in a much quicker pace when they're coming out of college or into the professional leagues. You can't say that about everybody, but the ones like a Patrick Mahomes, obviously you look at Tom Brady when he first started in his career, taking over Drew Bledsoe, Bledsoe's spot and then you know on to six Super Bowls with the New England Patriots. I mean, I think that Michael Jordan you know, he quickly, in his era, he quickly had to really build up his confidence and he became the best player in the league. And he was seen as somebody who, because he had that three years at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill playing for Dean Smith, you know, Phil Jackson talked about it all the time that because of Michael's early um, mentorship from Dean Smith that really set him on the right track in his career compared to someone, let's say, you know, a Kobe Bryant, who he coaches well, who didn't have the college experience. And I think had took some time before he could become a true leader. And I mean, there are just so many players to name. I mean, this generation or even previous generations. And I think it's just amazing how you can compare and contrast, you know, the maturity levels or just the, the leadership qualities that each athlete has is I really do think that it's also about timing too and having the right people around you and in the right environment that fosters and bolsters and really maintains a championship style uh, basketball or football, baseball, hockey, whichever sport. I guess my last question before we depart from our interview and did you ever as a woman journalist and growing up in Chicago and being in an industry that at one time were more uh, dominant uh, with men, how much, and you mentioned Oprah, how much did Oprah influence you? you? Uh, being that, you know, in the eighties, around the time of Michael Jordan, obviously, but she, with her talk show and, and really being somebody who really transcended the industry and really her professional career has taken on so many different um, streams of success. How much did she influence you uh, growing up? You might be the first person who has ever asked me that. Um, Oprah, influenced me tremendously. Um, I wrote a letter to her when I was in college and um, back in the old typewriters. And I sent her a letter. Um, it was a fan letter. It was part of, you know, when I was writing letters to all the sportscasters in Chicago. And um, yeah, I just loved, what I loved about Oprah is the same thing that I really recognize and love about Robin Roberts at Good Morning America. I worked with Robin at ESPN. And it these were, for me, the first women on television that I saw who were allowed to have a personality. 
And I thought that that was going to change TV for women forever because before um, women either had to um, dress like men, wear their suit jackets, you know, even, you know, the scarf almost looked like a tie like men, um, you know, they uh, were not allowed to use personality. They were very businesslike and, you know, just mimicked the men, the way they talked and the way they did their interviews. And um, I understood that because back in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, it was, it was about being accepted by the, your audience. And when Oprah came around, she just, I was, she had personality. She was funny. She was insightful. She was a really smart interviewer. Um, I just loved that. And I thought, yes, yes, that is it. That's exactly, you know, I want it to be okay to be this Northwest side girl from Chicago who has a Chicago accent and um, is a little loud, a little obnoxious, um, very sarcastic, um, loves to laugh like Ruth Buzzy. You know, I'm like, yes, I want this opportunity to be myself and at the same time do a job that I would love doing. So Oprah was a huge influence for me. She sent me a letter back, um, nicely typed. I have it somewhere. That's wonderful. That, that said something like, um, you know, you could just see her, you know, way to go, keep working hard, Peggy. You know, it sounds like you're on your way. You know, it was just, um, but that's what you needed back in college. I just needed that kind of encouragement, like people to say, yes, yes, keep doing it. Um, and then to see when ESPN hired Robin Roberts, I thought that she truly changed the landscape for women in sports broadcasting because, um, you know, she was able to say, you know, go on with your bad self when she was doing highlights and um, use her personality. And I, I truly thought that that changed the landscape for women in sports broadcasting. And were there others who you enjoyed working with as well? Are there a few names? Oh, yeah. I mean, I worked a lot with people may not remember Carrie Ross. She was out of Oklahoma. She covered college football. Um, I, I worked with Carrie at ESPN. Andrea Kramer um, was, Andrea Kramer, just a, a bulldog of a reporter who taught me how to be a reporter like the guys who taught me that it's okay to contact general managers and agents and um, use them for information. Um, Oh, absolutely. I mean, the list goes on. I had a, a lot of really good um, female reporters that I worked around um, at ESPN when I was coming up. And then when I, I came to Chicago, um, a lot of, I respect a lot of writers. And um, because what we did in broadcasting was very different from what the beat reporters do. Um, so I, there were always women that I respected. Um, I don't want to leave anyone out because um, there are too many to name, but um, absolutely. I mean, if you, it, it, it's what they say about if you believe in angels, if you believe in angels, you see them everywhere. If you don't, you don't know where to look. If you believe in mentors, you know, um, that don't have to pull your hand and I'm not asking someone to get me a job or anything like that, but people to look up to, you know, they are everywhere. You just have to look. Absolutely. And I think about all the people I worked with. And one of the 
ladies who I worked with was Wendy Nix uh, when I was the ABC College Football Live production assistant um, for the 2011 College Football season in Studio G in Bristol, Connecticut. And I mentioned I had worked with Lou Holtz and Mark May and the late John Saunders, Jesse Palmer, Scott Van Pelt, John Anderson, Robert Flores, and Robert Smith. And Wendy Nix was the one lady who I got to work with. And again, someone who really knew, and she knows her sports very well. I mean, she is someone who has a wealth of knowledge about the game. These are people who have their families, they have their lives outside of the profession, but when you're working with them and you remember watching them on TV, you feel like in a vacuum that that's who they are only, but it's not because when you get to know them, you see that they have lives like everybody else and they are you know, doing everything they can each day to improve on their craft, their professional craft, and be the best possible people they can be. And, you know, because I'm interviewing you and all the women you've worked with, Wendy Nix was just somebody that came to mind or who came to mind because that's who I work with. And I'll, I'll leave you on this last note that John Saunders, I, I loved John very much and worked with him. And he gave me this advice when I was uh, pursuing an on-air career. He said, Peggy, don't ever tell them what you don't know how to do. Just get the job and then learn how to do it. Some people may not agree with that, but I have never forgotten that because he was right. In, in a competitive industry, when it's really hard to get the jobs, just get the job and then work your butt off to figure out how to do it and then hone your craft and do it well. I think that's great advice from the late John Saunders. And I'm so glad I've interviewed you and a few others who have talked about uh, who John Saunders was to them and what he meant to them. And I think that's a great way to end our interview and on our podcast episode of Wave Capital's guest speaker series on relationship building in a team environment. Thank you so much, Peggy, for being with me today. Uh, so enlightening. I look forward to writing this book. And um, as I mentioned to you, you know, each guest that I'm having to make them a chapter in the book. And I'm sure I'm going to have follow-up questions to, to write your chapter. And I look forward to those conversations. I look forward to it too. Thank you, Garrett. Thank you, Peggy. You have a wonderful day. You got it. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye.